0: Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist, Bruce Dormany. Host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, the search for planets beyond the solar system, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 64 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Mark Pising, a UK-based journalist whose articles have regularly appeared in BBC Future, The Guardian, Wired, and The Economist. His article The Plane Too Ahead of Its Time was included in BBC Futures Best of 2020 collection. But today we'll primarily be discussing his first book, In for Down: The Hunt for the Arctic Airship Italia, just out from HarperCollins. Pising joins us from Oxford, England. Mark, welcome to Cosmic Controversy.
1: Well, thanks, Bruce. Thanks for the invite.
0: First off, uh, congratulations on your book, well-written and a fascinating history of a little-known era in aviation history. And as you can hear, there are seaplanes in the background. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so aviation never stops. Yeah. But as you know, Robert Peary first reached the North Pole in 1909. But 100 years ago, the Arctic was still largely unexplored, was it not? And in the mid-20s, no one had even successfully landed at the North Pole in an aircraft.
1: There were some doubts about whether Robert Perry had actually met, got to the North Pole. I don't think at the time not everyone accepted that he, uh, he had. Uh, I mean, they didn't think he, from my research anyway, they didn't think he was a crook like Cook was, but they would, not everyone was totally sold on the idea that he had got to the North Pole.
0: Uh, I'm not carrying water for Robert Perry. <laughs> 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 but uh, if you look it up he he generally is credited with getting to the north uh, getting to the north pole first by whatever means.
1: Well well I, I think the problem that all all these explorers had about g- getting to the north pole by by foot was a, was the a problem was that the north pole isn't a, isn't a fix point in land you know like it is in antarctica The south pole was a solid piece of land you plant your flag there right someone comes back in, a year later and the flag hopefully maybe still be there or there would be some evidence that you've been there so you could kind of demonstratively prove that you've been there but the problem is the north pole is just in the middle of an ocean on on sea ice which obviously do, does move around so it's very hard for these early explorers without gps any of these technologies to kind of definitely prove that that they were there now it wasn't till till the 1960s 70s that the first person who got to the north pole with a criminal kind of satellite tracking could actually go look i am actually at the north pole at, and was, at
0: the geographic north pole
1: yeah at the geographic north pole yeah
0: okay uh, not casting aspersions on perry it's just that he was hamstrung by the technology of the time
1: that's right yes you know so so some people Weren't, weren't, it's very hard for him to, to totally prove that he got to the North Pole. And there were some some doubts expressed at the time.
0: And you mentioned a, a fellow named Cook. Actually, um, it was uh, Frederick Cook. Yeah, Frederick, was an American yeah, explorer, yeah. physician, and ethnographer who claimed to reach the North yeah. Pole on April 21st, 1908, according yeah. to Wikipedia, a year ahead of Robert Perry. But what you're saying is that Perry acted in good faith. He was just basically... Hamstrung by the fact he didn't have GPS technology to actually, so he he could actually prove that he had made it to the geographic North Pole. Because as you say, what people don't realize about the North about the North Pole, there is no land mass underneath this. This is all ice pack.
1: Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it's very hard to kind of leave a marker, you know, saying that you've uh, you know you've been there. (laughs) Okay, okay.
0: In the mid twenties. The Arctic was still largely unexplored, was it not? You mentioned several times in the book that these explorers kind of go into a hole in the map.
1: For a long time, people had thought there was perhaps another continent there, or, or perhaps even if you, if you went past the geographic North Pole, that there was perhaps uh, kind of a warm ocean on, on, the, other, on the other side.
0: And why did they uh, think that there was on the other side of the North Pole there would be open waters? To me, that's counterintuitive.
1: Yes, I, 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 I think it was. It's probably the kind of the triumph of kind of hope, hope and dreams, you know, over over reality.
0: But by the early twenties, there was no one had still had an aircraft that had reached the North yeah. Pole. I mean, it was it was Robert yeah. Perry who had made this claim of having trekked there on foot. Uh, and then yep. I, I guess you had a few icebreaker bri- icebreaker ships that uh, had made the far north, but not even a ship had had made it to the geographic North Pole at that point, had they?
1: That's right. Okay. That's right. So, okay. so, so that was the race. That, uh, that was the race that was on.
0: There was almost an obsession with all things Arctic for the first thirty years. The 20th century.
1: I think it was kind of almost as a result of globalization. We don't often use the word globalization to, to uh, I suppose, to describe that period of our history, of Western history. But, but in a sense, there was. You had the yeah the growth of these huge, huge, kind of uni uh, European empires. Communications were speeding up. The world was getting very was getting much, you know, much smaller. I uh, suppose we talk about it now, but with the internet. But it was that was happening then. So the, you know, all the holes in the map, all the mysteries are beginning to be filled. But in, in the Arctic and, and obviously in the Antarctic, you still had these kind of large areas of unexplored, unexplored land, lands where people could, I guess, project their dreams or their fantasies or, the, or their fears onto.
0: And so couple that with the, the new technology of aviation, which was still yeah. in its infancy, and you get a race to conquer the North Pole.
1: And plus, uh, and I think this is often overlooked. I mean, it's fueled by, especially when you get into the kind of nineteen twenties, fueled by media rights. And you have these large media, media companies like Hearst. You you have uh, kind of newsreels, You have uh, cheap cameras. You know, there's a huge demand for. I hate to use the word content, but there's a huge demand for footage. You know, <laughs> you know, you know. So, so people could see what was happening. So you're saying there was, there was
0: almost a, as much demand for content in the early 20s, <laughs> but in, in early media like film or radio yeah. a, as there is today or was uh, 10 years ago for internet contact content. I think now yeah. people are kind of, the internet is a bit saturated with media content at this point. Yeah, exactly. But, you know,
1: yeah, exactly. but 10 years yeah, ago,
0: so- it kind of was like analogous to what we were going
1: through in the early,
0: in the early 20s.
1: Okay. And, and, this prov- and this provided a lot of funding for, for these you know, expeditions.
0: Uh, Roald Amundsen actually tried to fly to the North Pole in 1925, did he not? Yeah. T- t- tell us yeah. what happened on that on that journey.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it's worth saying that he tried before as well, but, but without much success. So 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 just a little preamble to the flight. Sure. He tried before, uh, and and he'd lost a lot of money, uh, and he was bankrupt, and he was in a hotel in New York, creditors were actually knocking at the door and putting bills under 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 his door demanding payment and he was hiding uh, and the phone and the phone went and and there was this guy called Lincoln Ellsworth down down in reception and and he was a millionaire and he, and he uh, worshipped Amundsen and people like Wyatt Earp and all these kind of guys and he, and he was going to write the check where well, his father was for Amazon's so Amundsen's um, next expedition.
0: Oh, okay. In 1925. And so that's so, so, uh, that's how he got a, that's how Ellsworth got involved and in, uh, by bankrolling yeah. part of the expedition.
1: Yeah, so so, so basically they started off at, at Kings Bay uh, with, with two kind of two seaplanes that kind of Dordonio Wild Dornier, whale, seaplanes, which are kind of state of the art.
0: Now, where is King's we, Bay? Tell us where King's Bay is.
1: Okay, well, so, K- K- King's Bay is, is in the. So, Svalbard is an archipelago, 500 miles south of, of the geographic North Pole. A kind of. I mean, these are very rough estimates. It's in between, kind of Greenland, uh, and kind of Norway, I guess. If, if you draw a line straight from Scotland upwards, you you'll get to, you'll get to Svalbard. Uh, It's kind of right on the edge of the the ice sheet, so it has kind of you can get to a bit earlier in the year than any anywhere else. And in the northwest corner, uh, there's a place called King's Bay, which is kind of the the kind of English English term for it. And from there, many of the many of the aeronauts, if you, I love that term, aeronauts, many of the aeronauts took off from or land, you know, to explore to explore the Arctic.
0: And this is actually the Svalbard uh, archipelago is actually in the arctic ocean according to your book right
1: yes it is yeah
0: okay and uh, there's also long year uh, which is yep. the capital of uh, these yep. remote islands yeah we're going to get to that a, a bit later i want you to describe it but let's get back okay, to cool. uh, this early mission in 1925 uh, yep. with roald amundsen and ellsworth
1: so amundsen and five others took off in the in these two flying boats uh, he was in a rush, uh, so he didn't bother to wait for the radio, and and the men had and they had not practiced any kind of emergency communications or what to do if one of them had landed, had to crash land. So and they you know so it's kind of there's a degree there was an d- extent to which this expedition expedition was ill prepared. One of the planes, unbeknown to them, had got damaged as a taking off because they're kind of basically sliding along the ice, right to take to take off. Uh, and it was that and it was that plane uh, that that whose engine started to fail. so they decided they had to land short of the North Pole. And the idea was to get to the North Pole and e- even perhaps go on towards Alaska. so they had they had to land shorter short of the pole. Uh, and and one of the one of the features of, of this part this part of the kind of of the Arctic it, is when it from high up, the ice looks very flat, you know, and very inviting. But as you get down, you can see it's rougher and rougher and rougher, and there's gaps between, you know, the, the, there's gaps between the kind of different blocks of ice. Uh, so it's a much more hazardous affair, you know, than perhaps when you're, you know, kind of high in the sky. You, you think it is. So, right, uh, one gets one of the planes gets down safely. One of the planes gets uh, really bashed up, which they have to abandon. But they kind of pull it to safety and try and strip it of all the. You know, of all the things they can do, like the petrol, right. you know, petrol and so on. Uh, but the but the problem is that the two crews are, are far apart because they because the other plane just didn't know what was happening, so it flew on because there's no because without a radio, there's no form of communication.
0: Amundsen's plane had to do a forced landing. The other plane went on, but the other plane eventually landed as well, and it found a bit of of uh, open sea, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Okay, and but they knew that to be able Salve, to be able to get back to safety, that they were going to have to fly out in one plane, right, and kind of cannibal,
1: cannibalize the other plane
0: to be able to do so. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, uh, cannibalize the other plane, and then they also had to then uh, carve out, carve out, a kind of runway from the ice.
0: And and this was in the, 1925. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, they did not yeah. reach the North Pole, though. How far were they no, from the North no. Pole?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it was a, c- a couple of hundred miles.
0: Good gosh. So they were even a couple of hundred miles. Uh, they basically had just flown 300 miles north of the Swalberg's, and uh, <laughs> they were still 200 miles south of the geographic yeah.
1: North Pole. I mean,
0: good yeah.
1: gosh. Uh, they were you know, still a fair way from, from the North Pole.
0: So this is quite foolhardy uh, because they're taken off without a radio. They're an aircraft that really weren't equipped for this kind of thing. Um, uh, I mean, these were early aircraft, not casting aspersions on the makers of these aircraft or the technology yes. of the time, but they they were stretching it to try to do this even. I mean, it was almost like Amundsen had a death wish to get to the North Pole. In 1926, American Richard Byrd with Floyd Bennett flew over the North Pole in a Fokker trimotor. Is that disputed? Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everything's disputed. Okay. Okay. Well, well those kind of—I mean, I mean, R- Richard Richard Bird was the kind of the, the up-and-coming explorer. Uh, I mean, he was a kind of all-American hero. Uh, if, if you still use those, if you still use that term, right? Uh, and he had the looks, he had the charisma. I mean, he was better at the business, at the hero business, than probably Amundsen, what, um, Amundsen was. Right. So he, he arrived with a lot of resources. So whereas Amundsen's expedition was even with Ellsworth money. Was you know was still a bit kind of budget you know kind of uh, still a bit kind of budget limited right uh, uh, you know Richard Bird arrived with you know quite a lot of money lot, you know a lot of support good resources so he was a real very real threat there was a kind of bit of argy bargy between the two to begin with when when he when the Norwegians wouldn't let his ship tie up to Kings Bay's only only key it's only kind of one key at Bay at the time. I don't know if it's changed now. Right. Uh, and and uh, there was a Norwegian ship at the quay and the captain wouldn't move his ship, you know, to, to let the Americans unload. So, so so, straight away there was a sense of a bit of kind of argy-bargy between the Americans and, and the Norwegians. Bird blamed Amundsen, uh, who was obviously from his kind of Antarctic days was notoriously very competitive uh, and ruthless. He denied it. So, so you got all this kind of backstory to the flight. The, the flight seemed to be quite uh, successful. Well, they took off in the middle of the night. Uh, well, it supposedly it's kind of daylight there, but it was it was when, when people weren't expecting it. They had help from uh, one of Amundsen's men, mm-hmm. who, uh, who who gave them advice about how you can best take off. You, know, you need to fly off in the night when the, when the ice is harder so you're your heavier plane. You know, there's a bit of kind of funny goings on mm-hmm. there. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, when they're in the air, that they you know, kind of, uh, birds' notes, which he's are obviously going to have to rely on to kind of uh, prove the validity, you know, to prove the fact that he got to the North Pole. So, the same problem that Cook and Perry and everyone's facing is, you know, how do you prove you've got there? So, in terms of an aviator, you know, it has to be the kind of notes that you're making, the calculations that you're making that people can try and follow through, and and basically uh,
0: yeah. he he had to make these note, these notes on the fly, literally while he was yep. flying the aircraft, yeah. and uh, and there was so much noise from the engines. You write in your book that the only way yeah. uh, the pilot and the co-pilot could communicate were by passing notes back and forth to each other. Is that
1: right? Yeah, that's right. You know, so it's not it's not the ideal situation. No. It, uh, so so they so they appear to get have got to the. Uh, North Pole, where they thought it was, and and then they kind of fly back, but they get back uh, kind of earlier than any anyone expects, right? Uh, and also, there's a pro- there's a problem with, uh, with the Sexton yeah, as well. So, so that somehow they get back to King's Bay, which in itself is is a is an amazing achievement. But so their so we'll but,
0: like, but their flight was two hours shorter than exactly th- than they thought than most people thought it should have been if they had actually flown around the North Pole and come back, right?
1: exactly yeah and, even with they said they had a kind of wind behind them <laughs> uh <you know. laughs> they had a tailwind uh, but even yeah. then it's not so what uh,
0: what do you think did richard bird make it to the north pole
1: a couple of people who were involved in that really believed that he did he didn't you know and these didn't. are people who are kind of okay who, who are quite close to him I, if he didn't i would suspect it was just due to a kind of incompetence rather than deliberately trying to deceive people. Right. It's, uh, but it's interesting.
0: We talked about three uh, major figures. In, I mean, two major figures which are regarded as heroes. The the first one is uh, uh, Robert Perry, uh, who is basically in the U.S. is considered to be the first person to reach the North Pole by land. Now we're not really sure if that's the case. And then we're talking about <laughs> Richard, Bur- uh, Richard Bird, who is considered an American exploration hero and now uh you're telling us that uh, he may not <laughs> he may not have he and his aircraft may not have actually flown around the north pole and then we have this third character frederick cook who by all accounts intentionally deceived people about yeah uh, reaching the north pole is that right i mean he he, yeah, he, he did he, yeah. he he was a fraudster is that right
1: yeah, that's right yes okay uh but i think the thing with bird as well i mean he had the misfortune there's lots of kind of... Uh, ge- geopolitics is a bit t- big term, but there's lots of things going on at the time because the moment he got back, the Norwegians were bound to hate him because Amundsen was supposed to be the person who flew to the North Pole. So who is this guy who comes in?
0: Right. So what doesn't the general public fully appreciate about this part of Norway and the high Arctic? You actually described... You wrote a beautiful introduction to your book. I mean, first... <laughs> You are right about actually finding this ancient volume in a used bookstore. Was that Foils for somebody? Where where, where did you actually find
1: that book? Was that Foils? Oh, no, it, uh, it, it, I wish it, it, I wish it was Foils. Uh, I mean, that that would that would be the dream, wouldn't it? Uh, I know <laughs> it's kind of it, it was, it was over mail order, and oh, uh, is that right? Yeah, and it, and it arrived. I mean, it's on my shelf now, a bit more battered, and and it, and it's arrived. I didn't really know anything about uh, anything really about about the story.
0: Okay, uh, but that was the uh, inspiration uh, for you to do this uh, this book on Umberto Nobili. Is that how you pronounce his
1: last name? The Italian? Well, I so, well, I I've, I've been told it's Nobly. Nobly.
0: Uh, okay. Right. So it's Umberto yeah. Nobili, Okay. But that's what prompted you to do the the whole book on uh, yeah. Umberto Nobili's uh, uh, expedition to the Arctic North Pole using an airship, uh, which yeah. he dubbed an N four. Is that right? Is it N dash four? N four. Okay. N four. But what doesn't the the public, general public, not a pre, because you went up there to the Svalberg Islands. I mean, what do yeah. you, uh, paint a picture for us.
1: is just the scale of, of, of where you are. This, you know, the, the scenery, the mountains, the distances are, are vast. You are very small. It, it is kind of, you know, there are lots of feet, in some extent it's featureless, especially when you're kind of on one of the plateaus and it just seems to stretch out forever. You know, and you realize, you know, how how kind of small, how kind of small you are as a human being, and your hopes and dreams compared to this kind of eternal landscape. Obviously, we now know it's not eternal, and that's part of the tragedy, really, of you know, of of being there. But it kind of balls into your soul in, in a way, and there's and there's kind of also a sense of freedom, bizarrely, freedom from everything that you've left behind, you know, as well. It's a really kind of it's a real kind of intoxicating. You know kind of mix, and I can see why explorers started to get addicted to the Arctic, you know, and wanting to keep coming back until they've achieved that. You know, there was something about it that just kind of pulls you, even now. You kind of I, I get the I wish I could go back.
0: It's kind of has a mystical quality as yeah. you write about it, uh, uh, it's but it really is a, a most of it is a featureless kind of ice world desert because you write that there you do uh, that the explorers did see. Uh, some wildlife, but basically yeah. at the northernmost reaches, it's pretty much of an ice world desert.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's very, I mean, I mean, it's very hard to, to survive. I think it's easier to survive. Uh, it is easier to survive there than in in the Antarctic. I mean, there's still more, there's still more to eat, and beneath the ice, you know, the, the, there there's fish and things. But it is, it is very much like like a desert. It's kind of featureless until you get up, up close. I think the pilots saw it as 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 being, you know, quite featureless. <laughs> In, until they obviously had to try and survive in it, you know, when it when it when it was a nightmare. But it was just this kind of, I think, from that height, you, you, it's just this huge expanse. Uh, and also the kind of when you're tired or when you're exhausted, the, you know, for the pilots, you know, the human brain starts playing tricks on them, and, you know, and they would see kind of you know you know visions and things like this, you know, which the, the, which I mentioned in the book, you know, and they're obviously not things I've made up. They are, you know, what nobody recorded it, you know, in in his account. You know, I think at one point it was cavalry charging or something like you know it looked like a castle. So you kind of start to see how, you know, you know people started to think there was something else out there. You know, it'd be possible if you were exhausted at the end of your tether to you know to see something that perhaps you made you think there was something else there.
0: Uh, ironically, at that in the early twenty in the early twenties, uh, airships were seen as by some as a better way to explore the Arctic than by planes. Yeah. And um, they were actually this this airship effort started in the late 19th century on July yeah. 11th, 1897. You write uh, Swedish uh, Salomon August Andre decided yeah. to fly from Svalbard to the North Pole in a balloon. He and his two crewmen yes. took off for the pole, floated over the horizon, and disappeared. And their their skeletons were found 33 years later. Yeah. Uh, Walter Wellman attempted. The, to make the pole three times in 1906, 1907, 1909, in yeah. a sausage-like airship called the America. Yeah. In 1909, the America managed to stay in the air for a couple of hours before it crashed. You right uh, Yeah. And so he was not rescued either. Well, he
1: was rescued. He, he was rescued. He made, he, he made it back. Yeah. And he tried to fly over the Atlantic uh, for his next trip.
0: And then we have Umberto Nobili, who was an Italian dirigible engineer, an aeronaut, an Arctic explorer, a member of the fascist uh, party (laughs) under Mussolini. Uh, But you're right, he was also an opponent of Mussolini. That seems strange. And maybe even a Soviet spy.
1: Although he was a member of the fascist party, he was suspected uh, of being a a socialist, uh, hiding hiding kind of a communist in his in his factory I mean, it's very noticeable uh, there's one account in the book that his factory has very few flags and Mussolini's or very few few kind of fascist flags so this w- rose suspicions amongst people who obviously didn't like him uh, were, were jealous of his, of his success but so there's always this thing lingering around about what, what was his politics
0: So you note that Nobili twice flew jumbo jet-sized airships, lighter than aircraft, that he designed and built on the epic journey from Rome to Svalbard to explore the Arctic. But in 1926, a dirigible he built and piloted, the Norge, became the first aircraft to cross the roof of the world from Norway to Alaska. And on board that flight, uh, we had Roald Amundsen. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, But his public falling out with... Amundsen, over who should take credit for the flight, made headlines across the U.S.
1: Their falling out started uh, earlier. Before they left on the trip, nobody tried to renegotiate his contract, first in terms of pay. He then demanded to be able to write a chapter of the book of the expedition, because one of the big ways they make their money from these expeditions is the book. These books are massive sellers, so nobody demanded that he was able to write a chapter. In, in this book, and he got these demands met. Uh, these demands were agreed to, and then the, and then he also demanded that his name should be added to the expedition title, so it shouldn't just be Amundsen Ellsworth; it should be and Ellsworth uh, nobly uh, So it's already bad blood, and and Amundsen thought that Nobley had, had played a trick on the Norwegians by making them leave their expensive tailor-made flight suits behind in order to save weight. So there's all this kind of these stories, and they got to the North Pole. The Norwegians and the Americans dropped these little, small little flags, and then the the, the Italians <laughs> kind of un, unwrapped <laughs> a, yeah, a huge, a much bigger, I think a huge, I like the flag. huge
0: flag. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing yeah, yeah. I remember that. So
1: it was fair, a fair bit a bit of bad blood already by the time they got to, you know, the the they got to America. Then it was really about who took who took credit. I think Amundsen hadn't realised. Okay, it's great that he came up with the idea that you should fly and flying was the best way to do exploration. But you hadn't realized then that no one would be interested in the kind of the old-fashioned kind of, ex, you know, kind of alpha male, tough explorer. Uh, and actually the new hero were the pilots and the engineers who built who built these aircraft. So you hadn't expected all the public to actually see Noble, who, who obviously designed, built it, and, and kind of flew it, as the hero and not him. So that was really the bone of contention you know for him but there was another uh,
0: element to this and that that, that uh, once they made it to Alaska uh, and that was interesting because they went on a one-way trip uh, from Spalberg yeah. to over the pole to Alaska and they landed in Alaska and they were met by a huge Italian American contingent yeah uh, and it became like this Italian American pride celebration and the Italian government was only too happy to oblige yeah, in the publicity and uh, Amundsen was kind of left behind in the publicity game. Uh, but, you know, it yeah. also was interesting. It just struck me. A hundred years ago, uh, even more, um, people were getting funding for these kinds of expeditions through uh, media rights, as you say, to the rights to, to books or publicity, uh, exclusive rights uh, from newspapers or this sort of thing, lecture tours. And nothing has changed. The more things change, yeah. the more they remain the same. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you look at the National Geographic specials that are on television. Yeah. Those things are all funded by these documentaries, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, go yeah. ahead. And, and Ellsworth, Ellsworth in particular. Sorry, not Ellsworth. Richard Bird in particular. Had a very close relationship with with National Geographic. <laughs> Is
0: that right? Uh, oh,
1: okay. Yeah, yeah, very close. That, and they validated his flight to the North Pole as well when he got back.
0: But you write that the Norwich had reached the North Pole in sixteen hours by yeah. foot and uh, by boat and by foot it would have taken yeah. uh, eight months. Uh, so yeah. the Italian-built airship went on to cover an unexplored area of almost eight hundred square miles in only thirty yes. hours. I mean, it's pretty yeah. amazing. What was the attraction at that time, that whole era? The first 30 years of the 20th century, aviation and aeronautics seemed to have a hold on people, and there was a devil care yeah. attitude among many explorers to put their lives on the line to meet their goals in a way that we don't see today. Today we see billionaires going into space, and I'm not taking anything away from that, yeah. but uh, they aren't doing anything that wasn't
1: done 60 years ago what struck me when when i was getting to know nobly was just the attitude to death you know people are willing to the attitude was you sign up for this expedition if you die you die you've agreed to it you know that there's kind of okay people are upset it's sad that you've died you know but there's a sense of that that was your choice and people w- were i suppose we say now reckless but but, but they just didn't seem to see death you know and sacrifice in the same way in the same way uh as we do today, and I think that's one of the big, big differences. And also, I think the industrial the millionaires who the billionaires who fly today into space. I mean, that depending on what you know, it's probably the third industrial revolution or the fourth industrial revolution they made their money in. But people like Ellsworth, I mean, who, you know, their kind of their their dads were industrialists. They were close to the frontier, and all these ex- explorers. You know, none of them are poor. They are all from the middle and upper upper middle class. They all. But life was still quite close to the frontier. You know, people, it wasn't that, that long ago that the American West was being explored. And, uh, the, you know, there's a very different generation of people.
0: But even though Umberto Nubili was was on this successful mission, which actually went from Svalbard to Alaska, and he got credit as the pilot for the, the, the mission with Am- Amundsen and the others, oh. He had a bee in his bonnet to get back to the North Pole. He did, yeah, uh, under an Italian flag, solely in a in an in an airship that he controlled and that he built. And this mission was known as N4, which is the title of your book. It ultimately was an unsuccessful mission, but it was a great it's a great rescue story. Why did he feel the need to to do this? Uh, and uh, you write that this. Uh, This airship was as large as an A three (laughs) hundred and eighty aircraft, and I've actually been on an A three hundred and eighty several times, and those things are huge. I mean, you know, so it's it's amazing that this thing was that
1: large. Uh, I don't think people people have forgotten how big these these uh, airships were, and and the N four is is a small one in comparison to the German Zeppelins. So people forgotten just how huge these crafts were. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think no, nobody was compelled by a number of reasons to want to go back. I, I think to one to one extent, he was he enjoyed the fame. I mean, you know, you have these cheering crowds; everyone loves you. Uh, you know, and and you know, it must be quite. It's a kind of form of celebrity, isn't it? It must be quite quite addictive, uh, especially when you get back to Italy and and the politics and the machinations of uh, you know of kind of you know Mussolini's Italy uh it must be kind of a bit like the freedom i was talking about the idea of going back to the pole you're away from the you're away from the secret police you're away from you know the rumors about you uh and you can just go to the north pole and it's kind of it's freedom isn't it so i imagine i think there's an element of that i think he kind of realized you know th- this was making his reputation as an engineer uh, and he enjoyed the challenge he felt uh you know Amundsen and the Norwegians had really underrated the Italians. I, I think, as I write in the book, there's was a degree of racism at the time, which we've kind of forgotten now between the northern Europeans and the southern Europeans. Right. Uh, and he, was, I think, they were very, you know, c- clearly a kind of a victim of the, of that. He wanted to prove that they were, you know, as good as the Norwegians. Uh, you know, and I suppose he believed in airships, and he wanted to continue to prove the kind of the. The, the advantages of the airships, and he originally intended to go back with a much larger airship to the North Pole. But his, his kind of his uh, so his greatest enemy, Italio Balbo, uh, cancelled the airship when he was when he was in Japan, uh, teaching the Japanese how to fly one of his airships, uh, and and his enemy cancelled the airship. It was nearly complete, and the and the guy even had it dismantled, melted down totally destroyed so, so there's no yeah, no way no nobody could come back and get it restarted again so that meant he, he was left going back to the north pole in, in, a, in a, kind of a ship which is basically the same a little bit improved from the one he went in in 1926
0: and the high point of the Italia's flight to the north pole you're right was intended to be the landing of a man or party of men briefly on the ice or on the sea Nobly would be the first man to land on the North Pole. The idea was to kind of hover 160 feet above the ice, yeah. drop a patented sky anchor. Nobly clutching the Italian flag would then be lowered onto the ice in a pneumatic basket
1: that could act as a raft. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I, I mean, just to put this into context, he, he planned, I think it was, a, uh, he planned, because the problem is that, as you said, you know, Armand—they'd all been to the North Pole in 1926. It's not really news any anymore, right? Uh, so, so it's all about. So a, it was a,
0: almost uh, like the. It was almost like the Apollo missions to the moon. I mean, yeah. uh, Apollo uh, eight circled the moon. Apollo ten actually kind of did a milk run lower with the lunar module over the surface of the moon, and then the uh, Apollo 11 actually landed. And so in Apollo terms or lunar exploration terms, uh, uh, Nobili wanted to actually become a Neil Armstrong and actually walk on the the (laughs) North Pole, right? Uh, Absolutely. Okay.
1: Yeah. uh, You also did one other thing as well. It wasn't just just flying to the North Pole. He did a series of flights. He was planning to do a series of flights because he realized you can't just do one flight now. He wanted to actually to a establish a
0: base, also like Apollo. It's,
1: it's very similar. Yeah. They're, they're,
0: they're interesting yeah, exactly. analogies.
1: Yeah, so, uh, And one of the points I wanted to make earlier, when you talked about the the, the aeronauts compared to the billionaires now, was when I watched the National Geographic's n- remake of The Right Stuff and also the original movie, it struck, struck me how much the aeronauts, these guys were closer to the kind of the astronauts that were being recruited by NASA than, than they are to the billionaires who are going up, up into space. They felt much closer in, their kind of, in the kind of amount of hustling they had to do in order to get the kind of money and things that they deserved. So,
0: But actually, ironically, Nobili was saved by this new radio technology of the time, which uh, yeah. was only basically in its infancy. Marconi, yeah. the father of radio had uh, overseen a lot of the infrastructure in Italy of yeah. a, way, a means to communicate uh, f- for marine purposes and navigation. Yeah. For this ex- expedition, the Italian Navy installed on the Italia and the Citta di Milano. That was yeah. a rescue ship, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, the,
1: ba- well, the ba- it was the base sh- it was the base ship rather than the rescue ship. The
0: base ship, and it, but it was based yeah. in uh, Norway. It was an Italian yeah. ship.
1: You know, he went up to Kings Bay with them. Okay. And it was in the harbor, and, and their men helped them and all that kind of... It was a support was ship. Like, okay. Yeah, a support ship, yeah.
0: So they integrated the uh, long-wave and short-wave radios, and then uh, there was a portable radio that Nobili took on the N4 yeah. for the... on the Italia for the first time, giving a landing yeah. party at the North Pole the power to broadcast directly to Rome. And it would yeah. give Nobili the chance to bring his dream of, of a base one step closer. Yeah. What happened? What precipitated the crash of the, of the well, Italia?
1: Well, that's that's that that, that, is, uh, that is a really good question. And just to come back to the thing about the base, I mean, nobody was warned because his idea was he was going to land on the ice first, and then some scientists could land and they could stay there for a couple of weeks. They could either be picked up again or come back on the ship. And he was warned that would be madness to leave anyone uh, on the ice, they'd never be found again. Uh, so it's kind of quite lucky for the scientists yeah. <laughs> that his plans had, didn't work.
0: Literally, with these ice flows, you could drop somebody off at what you thought was one point, and these ice flows would move literally yeah. miles away, and you'd, you'd never find them again.
1: So, in terms of uh, the crash, I mean, it's still a matter of, of debate today. Uh, there seems to be there's a number of different th- theories. There's uh, one of the key aspects, it must be a loss of helium. Because especially in the tail section uh, of the of, of the Italia, that, that would explain why no matter what he did, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get back up up into up into the air, couldn't get altitude, uh-huh. and and that could either be due to kind of a valve on, on what you know on the envelope or one of the kind of gas bags inside uh, freezing over, so, so so that meant that he couldn't stop the, the hydrogen just kept uh, just kept pouring, leaking out. Although, so so he, you
0: actually, you said you actually earlier, you said helium, but you meant hydrogen, right?
1: Hydrogen. Oh my God. Did I say helium? Yeah. Okay.
0: So that was a question for me because we know the tragedy of the Hindenburg because of the yeah. hydrogen. Uh, so, and then these blimps now use an inert gas helium. So why, uh, so why were they still using, uh, hydrogen at that point? They didn't realize the danger. Oh. Um, uh,
1: they did realise the, the the danger. Uh, uh, I, I guess that hydrogen is cheaper and more more easily available than helium. If you start using helium, then you're dependent on certain countries uh, that had access to uh, helium. That you're giving them control a bit like you know uh, you know the right. uh, countries that had lithium supplies now or, oils, or oil fields. So, so Americans had helium supplies. I think that was one of the big reasons. It's also not quite as effective in terms of kind of being able to lift
0: the buoyancy uh, The buoyancy effect yeah. is not quite as effective. Okay. So, bottom line is that exactly why the Italia crash is still in disputes. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. but what's not in dispute is the fact that this new radio technology allowed them to be rescued. It's an incredible story that they started broadcasting. SOS uh, from a makeshift because in the crash, the actual portable radio that they had set out with was damaged and then had to kind yeah. of uh, hamstring a, a makeshift radio to broadcast five minutes before each hour. And, and the radio operator did that until he was just exhausted. But miraculously, yeah. a ham, an amateur ham radio uh, operator in northern Siberia had picked up That's the right. signal and uh, reported it to the authorities and subsequently transferred this information to the the rescue sh- uh, the support ship this the chita di milano and uh, and the rest is history it took them even weeks after they had received the signal to kind of home in on where they actually were they sent an icebreaker and then they sent yeah. um uh, parachutes with supplies yeah. um uh, but how many of the there were sixteen crew on the Italia? Uh, how many weeks was it t- between the crash and their actual rescue? And how many were left?
1: It, it was close to two months f- from the crash to the rescue. Good gosh! Uh, yes, yeah, so, so it's a long time. If we're getting my f- figures right, as uh, six floated off in the envelope of the airship, never, never to be seen again. And there's, so, if I remember, when the airship crashed, most of the airship floated away. It's only part of the cabins. Uh, only part of the cabin and a couple of the engines that were left on the ice most most of it floated away right. and inside it was still people uh, you know and uh, and there's a wonderful descript- or oh, a terrible t- terrifying description of them looking down through the hole at the crewmates on the ground you know totally suddenly realising the horror horrific situation they're in so they were never seen again mm-hmm. one one of the crew members died who got you know on the ice after the crash uh-huh. Uh, and and then possibly one of them disappeared in an escape attempt or who was perhaps eaten uh, you mean cannibalized by the remaining crew well th- th- three other men uh, because they weren't having any luck with the radio they were convinced the radio wasn't wasn't working uh, and, and and they decided against uh, no nobody's judgment although there's an issue about his leadership that he didn't forbid them to go i think his idea was that if you forbid them to go they were going to go anyway and they set off across the ice in the belief they could get to dry land by walking across across the ice which is uh, uh, and when they rapidly discovered that the, the ice was moving them f- faster in the opposite direction to where they wanted to go than they could walk so every day the distance yeah, it must have been
0: absolutely horrific. So, six, of sixteen crew, six uh, floated off and were never seen after the crash. The remaining yeah. ten, three of which, uh, who, two, yeah, two of which, um, one one potentially walked off in the wrong direction, and yeah. the other one you're not sure
1: about. Yeah, we're not sure about. It. No one's ever, no one's ever, uh, you know, obviously found the body. So, uh, so that's
0: the remaining eight. Uh, and No was one of the eight who survived.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he was he was rescued first. Okay. so that's, that's the other that's the other scandal. Uh, yeah. When the when the when the rescue aircraft were able to find where they were landed landed on the ice, and and they persuaded him to leave. He was very badly wounded in his defence to leave his men on the ground and then fly back. To allegedly coordinate the rescue, he,
0: he actually, uh, though, ha- did uh, ha- have a broken leg. I
1: believe he. Oh, yeah. He was, I mean, yeah, he was very badly injured. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so, you know, so, so, and he presumably was in t- post traumatic, you know, stress, you know, didn't know what he was doing really, but, you know, right. but the, the adage is the, the captain is the last one you to leave the ship. Not yeah. Spoke.
0: Yep. I yeah, get, yeah, I hear you. Well, so ironically, uh, Roald Amundsen was. Uh, Lost during the an air search that he made for Nobili. I mean, that's very yeah, that's ironic. Right. And you write that Amundsen's body was never found. One of the plane's engines may have been recovered by a trawler in 1933. Uh, three, you write, but it yeah. fell back into the sea before they sec- could secure it. And then in 1964, plywood that might have belonged to the aircraft was found near Svalbard. Uh, yeah. Had there been any other sightings? A potential debris from Amundsen's aircraft. Uh,
1: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, And they even sent down, I think, uh, as I wrote, they even sent down subs down in, I think, 2012 to have a look. Uh Uh, So so that they they have found nothing. Uh, The the couple of of people who said that they were descendants from Amundsen because he survived, the the DNA seemed to prove... Uh, that they weren't, so, you know, there's really no idea, you know, where he is. I, I mean, I suppose you could say that, that gives some credence to the people who argue that perhaps he made it to Svelbard, you know, and they're on a kind of plateau somewhere, it, it, you know, is the wreck of his aircraft, but, you know, but perhaps it's one of the mysteries that tragically the melting sea ice, the melting ice, is actually going to reveal.
0: So what uh, puzzles you most about either, or both the, Amundsen's and Nobili's quest. Uh, frankly, it's an obsession <laughs> to get to the North yeah. Pole.
1: <laughs> well, I, I suppose having been there now, I can understand their their obsession with uh, with Amundsen. I, I guess it's the kind it's the. I suppose, I suppose it's more with Nobili. I, I mean, some some of the decisions he made. I think in you know, in 1920 in 1926, he was famous. He was well known. He didn't have to go back. I think I think these are these are these are. I'm not really. I think these are some of the big puzzles. I think when Armanson, there was clearly something up. He'd suffered from depression. He'd been ill. Mm-hmm. You know, there were all the stories about his state of mind before he w- went on the flight. You know, death wishes street, is a is is a strong word, but there's clearly a sense of him. Get, you know, this may have been his last flight. You know, the things he didn't. You know, he gave to his friends. He didn't get repaired. They had always taken. You know, with him, he put his affairs all in order. You know, so, so there was always something very deep and dark going on with, with Amundsen. I, I think i think with, with Nobly uh, i mean it's just some sort of, it's it's just his d- decision making and for uh, you know with his enemies and also the key thing for him for his whole career and his whole reputation was was his decision to go to leave his men on the ice uh, and be and be airlifted to safety that totally destroyed his career it gave huge amounts of ammunition to the enemies in Rome uh, and and, it's, and his reputation has nearly never really recovered. And the tra- tragic thing, the crash of Italia is one of the crashes that helped discre- discredit airship. So I think he's kind of uh, a, a tragic figure, almost really.
0: And but you you also write in your book that if he had not crashed, if he had been successful, his name would have been
1: his name would have been forgotten, wouldn't it as well? So
0: well, uh, but his name has been forgotten <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because. Frankly, I I'm, you know, I, I consider myself fairly well educated. I, I had never heard of the guy.
1: I suppose it'd be even more forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, there's still occasional books written about him, like, <laughs> which puts <which, which laughs> to
0: Mark, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email yeah. if they want to learn, uh, they want to comment, or learn more?
1: Yeah, I'm uh, at uh, Mark Pising on Twitter. You can find Mark Pising on Facebook. Uh, and my uh, email is uh, on, on my website. Uh, and also, I'm talking at for, with the Explorers Club in, in New- well, online on Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern time uh, about the book. Uh, so they can join in for free to that conversation Okay, as well if they want to.
0: Great. So as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Mark Pising, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of this forgotten epoch in aerospace history.
1: Thank you, Bruce, for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormini, or his regular post on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.